Find Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bibles, please. If my count is accurate, we're up to message 17. Hebrews 12, beginning this morning in verse uh, 18, verse 18, and going down through the end of the chapter. Looking at the subject matter this morning, worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit and in truth. Some very applicable thoughts to us today. You know, anytime you talk about worship, folks have strong feelings, right? So let me start a fight this morning that you folks can finish in the parking lot, okay? Because after church, I'm heading to St. Louis. I got to try to make St. Louis by about 11 p.m. tonight. So I'll let Jonathan and Kevin moderate that fight out in the parking lot. But uh, have I mentioned to you that I have a grandbaby? You want to see pictures of the grandbaby? <laughs> That's our daughter's birthday this week too. But have I mentioned to you we have a grandbaby? <laughs> Worship in spirit and in truth. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? He says, For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Lord, speak to our hearts today through your word. Remove distractions from our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to be attentive to your word. To take notes, to apply these principles to our own lives. 
Jesus said to the churches in Revelation that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, I pray that that we would have ears to hear. You desire our worship. You deserve our worship. May all that we do glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, let's talk about worship. I do hope you'll take some notes, especially toward the end of the message. I'll have about five or six application points uh, for you uh, that you can carry away from here and make in your own lives. But as we talk about worship, listen to how Webster, one definition that Webster gives of worship, reverence offered a divine being. Reverence offered a divine being. Here's another definition. The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Now, of course, we believe the God of the Bible is the only true God. You can only have one sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise God. I want you to think with me about that. If you could have more than one, then none of those could be said to be sovereign and all-wise and all-powerful. Of necessity, there can only be one who fits that description. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that God gave says, You shall have no gods before me. Now, being God, Christians also believe that God has prescribed in the Bible how he is to be worshipped. Not only that he is to be worshipped, but also how he is to be worshipped. You have some Christians today who use what is known as the normative principle. Which means that if the Bible does not forbid it, we will do it. Probably most denominations and most churches who have a rather low view of the inspiration of the Bible would use the normative principle as they think about worship. And then there is what is called the regulative principle of worship, which says we will only do in worship that which we find expressly in Scripture itself. And most denominations and most churches that have a high view of Scripture would subscribe to the regulative principle. So Dr. Ligon Duncan, for example, says we are to read the Word, we are to pray the Word, we are to sing the Word, we are to preach the Word, and we are to see the Word, the ordinances. I think he's absolutely right. When Moses came off the mountain and they were worshiping the golden calf and making it out like they were worshiping the God who had led them out of Egypt, God was angry. Now some people don't like to think of a God of God being angry, but the Bible says he was angry. 
Jesus in a conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 said something like this. Here's how the conversation went. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. As we're wrapping up later uh, on today, I want you to think again of these words Jesus had with the woman in John chapter 4. Now this passage in Hebrews 12 really reaches the pinnacle, the high point of the crescendo in the comparisons that the writer of Hebrews has been making all through the book between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All through the book, there's been these running comparisons and contrast. And if anything, this passage is the pinnacle of that. And it's probably one of the most philosophical passages in the entire book. Now remember again the context, what's going on here. They are being opposed for their faith. They are Jewish Christians. For the most part, they're Jewish Christians. There may have been some Gentiles in the church, but for the most part, they are Jewish Christians and they are suffering trials because of that. They want to go back to the temple worship to avoid persecution as Christians. They miss the beauty of the temple worship and how easy life was back then when they could could go to worship, they could go home, and they were not being opposed for their faith. And so they're longing for those days once again. Now, I've told you before, lest somehow you think that this is a historical situation that has no relevance to us today. You know, it was 2,000 years ago. It remains uh, back there. You could not be more wrong. Christians today are likewise being opposed more for our faith than I think ever before. I read an article just this week of a professional soccer player. Women's soccer, of course, has been much in the news lately. And there was, a, there was an article about a professional women's soccer player right here in North Carolina who ended up being booted off of the U.S. team that just won the championship. And the reason that she was booted off, apparently was because of her Christian faith and her Christian values. And the statement said, her values and her faith do not agree with the values of the team. This Christian player commented several years ago that God has spoken clearly in his word that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. And she's been very vocal in that conviction. 
People insist that her talent had nothing to do with her getting booted off. She's a very talented player, one of the most talented in the world. And yet again, it would appear that she was booted off because in the statement it said her values do not agree with the values of the team. So when we talk about the whole premise behind the book of Hebrews, let's be honest. We are seeing these very same types of dynamics play out in the world today. Now I want to ask you to stay with me throughout this passage to the very end because in the end I want to show you how there is tremendous application. The cookies and the ice cream are going to come at the end but we've got to eat a little bit of broccoli first. What he points out to them in this text is that our worship actually says a great deal about who we worship. The way we worship, how we worship says a great deal about who we worship. First of all, I want you to see with me today the Old Covenant as seen in the Old Testament. Now that's redundant because the Old Covenant is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. So granted, some redundancy here. But the Old Covenant as seen in the Old Testament, it was characterized by things visible. Read with me again beginning in verse 18. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear people love certain visible and audible elements in worship that they grow accustomed to in their lives now at first reading of of this passage it seems like some very strange verses what is the wor- what in the world is the writer of hebrews trying to say to us you might be tempted to think He's lost me. I I don't understand what he's getting at. And as I say, by the time we're finished today, I think you'll instead be saying, I didn't realize how applicable this this passage is to us today. You're going to see that this is where the rubber meets the road. He's reminding them of events that took place all the way back in Exodus 19. What had happened in Exodus 19? God had led them out of bondage in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and they had reached Mount Sinai. And they were standing there at the base of Mount Sinai. And God called Moses to come up the mountain for God was going to speak to Moses and give his commandments to the people. And the people said, Moses, we are afraid. You go up for us and you get the commandments and whatever God tells you, we will do. But we're going to stay here because we are afraid. And God said, yes, indeed, the people are to stay at the base of the mountain. In fact, they're not even to touch 
the base of the mountain. They're not to approach the mountain in any way. Because if they approach the mountain, they are to be put to death. In fact, Moses, if any animal even comes up the mountain, you are to take that animal and you are to put it to death. Smoke covered the mountain, there was the noise of thunder, and the people were absolutely terrified. In fact, we're told here that even Moses, who God invited to come up to the mountain, was himself terrified. On the mountain and in the wilderness, God laid out all of his commandments and laws that were a part of the old covenant. There was the sacrificial system that was also part of the Old Covenant. And that's what the people are now in the book of Hebrews wanting to go back to. Now when it all took place back there in the Old Testament back in Exodus 19, they trembled with fear. They were terrified at the time, but now that's what they're wanting to go back to. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, this is not, this is not what you have now come to, for you have not come to what may be touched. Even though back there at Mount Sinai, had they touched it, they would have died. Nevertheless, they could have touched it. Yes, it would have cost them their lives, but they could have touched it. As they put up the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple was built under Solomon, the temple had things that they could touch. There was the altar, there was the priest with their priestly garments, there was the high priest with his high priestly garments, there were, there were the sacrifices, there was the basin of water that they would use to wash their hands and cleanse before they went into worship. There were all kinds of things in the temple that could be touched by someone if only that someone was a priest. But he's saying that was then. This is now. You have not come to that. He's speaking of the new covenant with Jesus. The new covenant grew out of and fulfilled the old covenant, but this is not that. You see what he's saying here? This is not that. He's made the argument already in Hebrews that the temple and the high priesthood and the sacrifices were all a copy of the heavenly. And that's why God had given such detail in the Pentateuch about how the tabernacle and the temple were to be built and about all of the utensils and the curtains and everything. Moses was told you are to make everything exactly as a copy of the heavenly. And so at this point, he's setting the table. He's setting the table of what his argument's going to be. I'm belaboring the point on purpose. What was it about the old covenant that had them wanting to go back? What was it about the old covenant? Well, There were things that they could see and things that they could touch. 
There was the city of Jerusalem. There was the city, the city of Jerusalem being the city of David, which housed the temple, the altar, the earthly priest with garments and sacrifices. There was all of the beautiful temple liturgy. All of this is what they are now wanting to go back to. Everything in that old covenant was characterized by things visible that could be touched. Well, secondly, he moves on to talk about the new covenant as seen in the New Testament. And and the New Testament is characterized by things invisible. Look, picking up in verse 22, what he says. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. They are not now at Mount Sinai. They're no longer at Mount Sinai. They are at Mount Zion. This would be Jerusalem, but there's also the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. The closing chapters of Revelation speak about this. The closing chapters in the Bible speak about the new Jerusalem. And for now anyway, it is invisible, it is heavenly, it is the city of the living God. The new Jerusalem is where God's throne is. He mentions that in the heavenly Jerusalem there are angels and then there's the assembly of the firstborn. These are the spirits of the saved who have gone on to heaven before us. And best of all there is God the Father and there is Jesus who's the mediator of the new covenant. His blood is what has been offered now in sacrifice for sin. His blood is superior to any blood that was shed Previously, whether it was Abel's blood or the blood of goats and lambs. He's saying in the New Testament church, this is the mountain that you have now come to. It is heavenly. It is better than the earthly. Everything about it is better than what the people had in the Old Testament under Moses In other words, God has saved the best for us. God has saved the best for us. They're wanting to go back to the first covenant, but the new covenant is better in every way. There is no comparison. In fact, God's not even dealing with people anymore on the basis of the old covenant. At, at this point, I just want you to understand how he, he's taking great pains. He's laboring to show them that what they have now is far better. There are visible and audible elements of worship that they greatly desire, but they are ignoring the most important elements of worship. They're making a poor exchange. 
Now he starts bringing it all home. Thirdly, I want you to see the warnings and admonitions that are clearly stated. Beginning in verse 25, he says, See see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The first admonition and the first warning that he wants to give them now is do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse him who is speaking. God is not some toy that we play with. Folks, we dare not take God lightly. This is serious stuff that we're about. God is a holy God. We've sung this morning already about the holiness of God. God is not the man upstairs. He's not somebody we mess around with. He's not somebody we play with and toy around with. This is not a game. Remember Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah went into the temple and God gave him that vision showing himself high and lifted up. God was high and exalted on on the throne and the robe, the, the train of his robe filled the temple and Isaiah was allowed to see seraphim which is a special class of angels who were flying around the throne of God and they were crying out day and night holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and when Isaiah saw that vision of God remember what he thought was going to happen to himself he thought he was going to die because he was in the presence of a holy God and it became very apparent to him in that moment that he was a sinful man God is a holy God. You don't refuse God. You don't take Him lightly. You do so at your own peril and your own demise. And that's what he's saying in verse 25. If they didn't escape in the Old Testament when they rebelled against God and refused to listen to Him, how much more will God deal with you and me now? You see, folks, we've been led to believe in the church today that because we're under grace and not under law, that we can get away with anything. I'll take a little of God here and a little there. But I'm going to basically do what I want to do and what suits my fancy. Because, hey, after all, I'm forgiven. I'm under grace. Jesus is nice and he died for me. He'll forgive me. He says, wait a minute. You are forgetting something. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They were judged in the Old Testament, but you will be judged even more severely, not less, because you are more accountable than they were. Theologians refer to this as progressive revelation. In other words, as you open your Bible at Genesis 1 and begin to read, 
God reveals more and more of himself as you read your Bible. And what progressive revelation says is just as God reveals more and more of himself as you read, you become more and more accountable to him. God doesn't reveal things just to have us sit around and talk about them. God reveals things that they will impact our lives and change our lives. And so the more that God reveals about himself, that means the more accountable you and I become. Let me give you an analogy. And I hope this analogy doesn't offend you. It is not meant to offend. You take a boy and a girl who are dating. Here's this boy and girl and they are dating. And while they are dating, he kisses another girl. Bad? Yes. Bad. But now you take that same boy and girl. This time though, they're not dating. They are married. And he kisses another woman. Bad? Yes. Really bad. Sinful. Question. Was he more guilty of kissing someone else when they were dating or now that they are married? This is not a trick question. He's more guilty now that they are married. Because he's in a marriage covenant with his wife. Their relationship has progressed and now it's at a whole new level. He's more accountable. Same kind of act. The act hasn't changed. He he kissed somebody else in both cases. And so the act was the same but the sin was greater as a married man. Now that's an analogy, good or bad, of what we're saying here. Don't press an analogy too far. All analogies and all illustrations break down if you press them too far. But the point is, he's saying to them, read your Old Testament and how God dealt with sin and unbelief under the law. Well, God will deal with sin and unbelief even more seriously now. Just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean that he's not going to judge you know we don't like living with tension do we and I'm not talking about tension like in re- when a relationship has gone sour I'm talking about tension like you would find in a novel that you're reading. There might be a couple of themes that go unresolved chapter after chapter and the writer doesn't resolve the themes until the very end of the book. And until then there's a tension. Well, there's that kind of tension in the Bible. Are Christians forgiven? Yes. Will God judge sin? Yes. Wait a minute. I thought you said I'm forgiven. I did and you are forgiven. 
Okay, so I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter. Yes, you are forgiven. But if you think that that means that because Jesus is nice and died for your sin on the cross, that God is going to wink and look the other way when you sin, then you've misread something seriously in the Bible. We know that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But we also know that sin under the new covenant is taken more seriously, not less. How does all that work? You'll have to ask God about that. I know this. God's grace in Christ is amazing. Amen? But I know this also. God is a consuming fire. Because we're told that here. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You better not toy with the grace of God. He's not somebody to be toyed with. Second word of application here. God is speaking to his people now through Christ. Remember, they're wanting to go back. They're wanting to go back. And what did he say at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews? He said, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Yes, God spoke in the Old Testament in certain ways, but that's not how God is dealing with people today. God is dealing with people today through Jesus. If you want to encounter God, guess what? You better come to Him through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. You're wanting to go back, you won't find God there. Folks, this gives added meaning to our message and our mission today in the Great Commission. When we're told to go into all the world and share the good news. When we're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, we're not just telling people that something that would be nice to do if they finally in life get around to it. The gospel is not some kind of extra tack on. It's not something optional. If you want to know God and you want to be reconciled to God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Third word of application. What this means for you and me now is that there is greater accountability today, not less. I'm using repetition for emphasis. With increased revelation given, there is great, a greater amount to answer for. Now think about it, folks. How many times have you been in a discussion with somebody when somebody says, you know, in the Old Testament, God showed up and would simply strike people dead? And then they will go on to say one of two things inevitably. Some people will say, I sure do wish God would show up like that today. And other people will say, I sure am glad God doesn't show up like that today. 
But underlying both of those statements is the assumption that you and I today get some kind of free pass that the people in the Old Testament did not get. But the writer of Hebrews is saying exactly the opposite. He points out just because you may not see God show up today like that doesn't mean that he won't show up and it certainly doesn't mean that there won't be accountability before him one day. He points out here in verse 26 that there is coming a day of shaking that is going to involve all of creation. It will be worse as a matter of fact, he says, because it's not only going to shake everything on the earth, but it's also going to shake everything in the heavens. The only things that will remain are the things that cannot be shaken. It's kind of a strange passage. When he talks about this, things that can be shaken. People love some type of visible aspect in worship. Wherever you fall on the worship spectrum, there are different things that different people like. There's a comfort zone that we all have. They had a comfort zone and they were wanting to go back to that comfort zone that they had had previously. But the trouble is what they were wanting to go back to was not about Jesus. Fourth application, worship is more than these visible and audible elements that we make it about. Worship is about Jesus. Now, I'm not going to answer all your questions this morning, okay? I'm simply pointing out what he's pointing out here. Worship is about Jesus. He's the one essential element in our worship. And they're in danger of missing him. And it's a danger even today. In worship, what are we doing? We are celebrating the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fact that God has reached down and saved you and me in our sin and brought us out of that sin. And he's reconciled us and we have peace with him now. That's what we celebrate in worship. And any form to our worship ought to aid in that. If a form in our worship doesn't aid in that, the form needs to go. The essence of the worship doesn't need to go. Anything we do in worship, whatever we do, has got to magnify and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Because you see, folks, worship is not about me. It's not about you. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. We're to boast in the cross. I don't have anything to boast in. You don't have anything to boast in apart from Jesus. Folks, we were dead in trespasses and sins. People get hung up on what they see or hear or don't see or hear. Keep in mind the Hebrews were in house churches. They were in house churches and they were missing the temple worship. What matters in worship is, do we encounter Jesus? Do we make much of Him? 
They were wanting to concentrate on the form of worship when they should have been concentrating on the essence of worship. They're actually entertaining leaving worship where Jesus is their focus now to embrace a worship where he was not the focus. And he's telling them, you are about to make a bad deal. And you're not going to find God there. A fifth word of application here. Whatever we substitute in his place will not last. He says it will be shaken and you will be left holding nothing. If you're embracing something other than Jesus Christ, you will be left standing alone before God and you will have no foundation whatsoever under your feet. Now verse 27 may possibly be a reference that is is not limited to, but it includes what was going to happen in 70 A.D. What was going to happen in 70 A.D.? The Romans were going to come into Jerusalem under Titus. Titus was going to lead the Roman armies in. And Titus was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And he was going to destroy the temple. It was going to be gone. Why do you think the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D.? Was it destroyed because the Romans had a bigger and better and stronger army than Israel did? Is that why the temple was destroyed? Do you not think that God, who had led his people for centuries, do you not think God could have protected his people? Do you think it's just because the Romans were stronger? No. God allowed what they were trusting in to be shaken and to be removed. Remember Jesus coming out of the temple, his last encounter with the religious leaders that he had going into Matthew 24. He's walking out of the temple and and his disciples say, Master, look at this beautiful edifice here. Look at this beautiful temple. And he said, I tell you, not one stone will be left here that's on top of the other. It is all going to come crashing down. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D. In other words, God was going to remove once and for all what they were trusting in. Here they are wanting to go back to something that is not even going to be around in a few years. God's purpose was to get them to see that their worship was in the wrong They were serving a building, a priesthood, a sacrificial system, and they were missing the unseen behind it. Folks, worship is not about the externals that we make it to be about. Wherever you land down on the worship spectrum, it is not about the externals. People today can get so bent out of shape about externals. But what's he telling the church here? Keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep it about Jesus.
And that's not all. He goes on to say here, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe for our God is a consuming fire. We're about holy business here. We are about holy business. It's about Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We are saved by His grace. We stand by His grace. We finish our race by His grace. Worship is about Him, not us. I wish we had time for chapter 13. Because really there's no disconnect between the chapters. Ethics grows out of theology. Chapter 13 is going to be about ethics. A laundry list that grows out of everything that he's saying. He's going to point out that where Jesus is the focus in worship and our worship is true, then what are we going to practice with one another? If our worship is true, we're going to practice brotherly love. If worship is true, there will be brotherly love. If worship is true, there will be hospitality. Some have even entertained angels by being hospitable, he says. We will visit those in prison and in distress. Marriage will be holy without adultery. We will not love money. We will be content with what we have. All of the, he's saying what grows out of true worship. We will hold tightly to Christian truth. We will live a life of good works. And we will obey and respect our spiritual leaders and submit to them, making their work a joy and not a burden. Now, folks, that's quite a list, isn't it? And he's saying that's what life in church is going to look like when we're really making worship about Jesus. I want you to think today about your worship. Do you crave certain visible or audible elements, maybe even more than you crave Jesus himself? And maybe if certain things aren't there done a little differently, you find it even difficult to worship. Think back to Jesus' words that I started with today. Woman, a time is coming that worship will not be on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now I know people can think, aha pastor, you're telling me I don't need church. I can worship at the lake. If the externals don't matter, I can worship at the lake. That is not the proper conclusion. We are commanded in the New Testament to worship corporately. And not just monthly. We are commanded to worship corporately weekly. Weekly. On the first day of the week, we are to come together in worship. It's not a suggestion in the New Testament. It is a command. And likewise, there are aspects to a building that help us. There's seating, there's a platform, a choir loft, a pulpit, there's, there's instruments at the Lord's Supper. There are trays that hold the elements. There are things that aid our worship. Please don't leave here saying that I'm saying these things are not important. What I'm saying is that true worship goes beyond these things. 
We can come and enjoy all of these things and we can miss God. Now, wouldn't that be sad? Ask God to help you always make worship about Him. Worship is about God. God's the audience. God's the audience. He's the one we're here to please. How much time do you spend on Saturday getting ready for worship? The men in our church, we've been going through a book. Some of the groups have finished. few groups are still going. He's been talking in that book, Challenging Men. And the men have come to me and said, you have no idea what that chapter on worship meant to us. How he talks about men 24 hours ahead of time on Saturday. Be getting ready for worship on Sunday. Be getting ready, preparing your heart before the Lord, in the Word, in prayer, praying that you will go with the right heart, the right attitude, that you will keep your worship on Jesus. How much time do we spend even on Saturday getting ready for this? Maybe you need to say, God, help me to do a better job at that. And finally, do you realize... that you're not a true worshiper if you don't know Christ. Because again, the way to God is only through Christ. And so if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not a true worshiper. What you need to do is you need to come to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a passage like this. At the end of the book of Hebrews, that he's writing to a people who are about to make a grave error in their lives. Lord, forgive us today in churches all across America that we can be tempted to make worship about the wrong thing. And we can miss an encounter with you. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for making it about us when it's about you. Draw our hearts to you. Lord, I do pray that in our personal lives we would be worshipers so that when we come together for public worship, private worship has gotten us ready for that. And I do pray for that one here today who doesn't know Christ. Lord, they're on the outside looking in. And your heart grieves for them because you want them to be reconciled to you. Through the power of your Spirit, draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.